Welcome back to another episode of the CNS Summit podcast. This was recorded on the main stage at the 2019 CNS Summit, which was held in Boca Raton, Florida. This episode features a conversation with George Goldsmith and Ekaterina Malievskaya from Compass Pathways. The conversation was co-hosted by Dr. Amir Kalali, the chief curator of CNS Summit, and Jane Metcalf, the founder of Neo.Life. They discuss the innovative psychedelic drug applications for depression and find out what this means for patients, regulators, and trials. For more podcasts like this, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and also find this on Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Be sure to visit the CNS Summit website at cnssummit.org to find out more about upcoming events, news, and announcements. And now, here's the conversation with George Goldsmith and Ekaterina Malievskaya from Compass Pathways. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Rapid fire from FDA to uh, George and Katya, who this is going to be my, my favorite sessions. I know you guys have flown in specially for us, so I'm really grateful for that. And I know that I've had the pleasure of having dinner with you guys a couple of times, which has been always fantastic. Um, and we thought that Jane and I would have a discussion about the things you're up to, which are kind of unusual, right? Jane, do you want to kick us off? Well, exactly. So the first question is for you, Ekaterina. I mean, you did all of the training to become a medical doctor, and that sets you in a particular mindset and on a particular path. And now you're the co-founder of a company doing psychedelic research. How did you get there? Right. Um, excellent question. So um, when I was in clinical practice in academic medicine and public health, I certainly never envisage that I will go into the most regulated industry to do research with a Schedule One substance in one of the most challenging indications. But um, we felt that we really had no choice. I refer to it as an involuntary startup. <laughs> so, uh, and about seven years ago, my son went to college and developed, really came crushing with severe depression and OCD, and more, uh, the more treatments he was getting, the worse he was getting. And mm -hmm. so we were pretty desperate, and I did what um, any parents would probably do. I dropped everything, and I started looking for uh, solutions and answers. And on this path, I talked to um, hundreds, if not thousands of people, patients, doctors, and on this path, our story paled in comparison to what everyone was telling me. Everyone had a story, everyone, yeah. no one was spared. And that kind of transformed um, our fear and grief into um, intent and sense of purpose. And so when in, um, in one of my sleepless nights, I found research in psilocybin and OCD when a small studies, several patients took psilocybin and all got better the next day. Um, I woke George up and I said, you, you grew up in the 60s. Um, you must know something about this. A little. And so, we, um, so we connected with researchers. We started looking at these signals. But we realized that it was more, answer, more questions than answers. And um, after a very steep learning curve and a lot of course correction, we formed Compass Pathways. Um, and in the meantime, my son uh, did get better, um, but it was not a story of a boy who failed traditional psychopharmacology 
and took magic mushrooms and then got better the next day and then parents formed the mushroom company. Oh, too it bad. Was always, <laughs> it was always uh, an intent behind the company was accelerating patients' access to innovation and mental health and the access is complex. It was not only about the innovative treatments, it was about quality of data, quality of care, accessibility and affordability uh, for everyone in need um, regardless of geography and ability to pay. Mm. And, and how is your son now? He got better. Yeah. So, uh, but that was a, you know, our story, our success story is just a story of one, uh, one family, one person. And um, I think that's why we named the company Compass Pathways, um, because we, as a family, walked that path and we navigated successfully. Um, so other families don't have to do that. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, you know, we are back at a time when we believe psychedelic drugs can have a huge impact on our mental state and well-being. You know, it's, it's a renaissance, really, of these drugs. Um, you know, hopefully this time we can get a little further than we did last time. But how do you see psilocybin fitting into an overall mental health care plan? Well, I, I think the use of the term renaissance is really interesting because renaissance comes after dark ages. Mm. And I think that we've gone through a period now from about 1965 until 1995 where these substances were not only made illegal, but no researcher would get near them. And then there were some brave researchers in the 90s who started looking at this again. But for those who don't know this, um, LSD was invented in 1943 um, and by Sandoz and distributed in clinical settings there, different than we have clinical trials today. Uh, psilocybin came out in 1958, again as an experimental medicine derived from the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, again by Sandoz. And that there was a lot of work, over 40,000 people actually experienced, participated in trials of various kinds uh, up until the mid-60s. So this is now coming back, we're looking at this after this period of dark ages. And I think one of the things that happened was in the mid-90s all the way into probably the mid to early 2000s, Hopkins, uh, University of Arizona, uh, University of New Mexico, UCLA, London Imperial, NYU, Lucky. University of Zurich, all these places started to look at this again. And um, what they were finding was really interesting. A single dose, relatively high dose, produced long-term benefit in people. Healthy volunteers actually had movement on core measures of anxiety, depression. We all have this to various levels, right? So, and then in patient populations, again, even small controlled studies, we saw something similar. What was really interesting is this pattern of a single dose, an immediate response, and a period of durability of that response, which could be three weeks, three months, six months, in some cases a year. Single experience, that's pretty interesting. Meanwhile, we've had a really big focus on transformation of technology and our understanding. So fMRI didn't exist in the 60s. It exists now. And I think some of our dinner conversation last night about this intersection of technology and biology gets very interesting, right? 
So what we've discovered, what actually was discovered at both Imperial and uh, Zurich was through fMRIs, what we see is a downregulation of a circuit, uh, the default mode network. And in that downregulation, um, people have a reset of kind of rigid thinking patterns. And we can go more into that at some point. But what's really interesting is that it seems to shift the way people see their lives, the way that people's narratives have grabbed a hold of them. And that's very interesting. So that was the psychedelic renaissance. And then kind of how do we go back into why now? We have a huge unmet need. I might even, if we could take 30 seconds for something, what do you think? Sure. Could everyone close their eyes for a second? We'll do that on the second. Trust me, it'll just last 30 seconds. And if you could raise your hand if you or anyone in your immediate family, as we did, struggles with some form of mental health distress, could you raise your hand? Keep your hand up in the air, and if any of you have someone in your family and, or in friends, et cetera, people you know who are important to you have some sense of mental distress and you're aware of that, could you raise your hand? And so let's open our eyes and look around us. Yeah. 90%. Yep. So, Katja, can yeah. I start with you? Um, what exactly happens in the psilocybin therapy session? Right. So um, in psilocybin therapy, we leverage both psychopharmacological properties of psilocybin and psychological effects. And this is a new type of um, care modality. And we can argue what, uh, what exactly is therapeutic, what drives change, whether it's psychological or pharmacological. But I don't think that at this point, and given the... Uh, significant unmet need and uh, that we're in 21st century, that we need to really be that reductionist. And we can accept that it might be more complex approach. And um, that's what happens in psilocybin session. They're both pharmacological, psychopharmacological, and psychological effects. And therefore, uh, it can only be administered with support of a skilled, um, specially trained therapist. So the therapy, psilocybin therapy, uh, has preparation, session, and integration. And the role of preparation, the main therapeutic role of preparation, is for patient to form um, trust and therapeutic alliance with the therapist. So the research shows that with, um, you know, with the sense of psychological safety, patients are more likely to open to all the experiences that can happen in psilocybin session and therefore uh, more likely to generate new insights, perspectives, and solutions for themselves and then uh, translate them into uh, meaningful change uh, of maladaptive patterns as a result of integration. So that's the main goal of preparation. Um, in psilocybin session itself, on the day of the session, patients uh, come in to the center early in the morning. Uh, we take a typical hospital room and transform it into a non-clinical environment with um, soft furniture, muted colors, high fidelity sound system. Um, patients uh, take the drug, uh, put on the eye shades, uh, lie down, and encourage to relax and listen to the specially designed um, soundtrack, the playlist. Um, so being psychedelic, meaning mind manifesting, uh, psilocybin facilitates this unusual sensations, unusual experiences, and sometimes non-ordinary states of consciousness. 
And like anything unfamiliar or unusual, it can cause uh, anxiety in some patients. And the skill of therapists is to help patients through these periods of anxiety and support them, but mainly to sit back and allow patients' experience to unfold on its own. Um, and it turns out that it's the most challenging part of being a therapist, to sit back and do nothing. And it requires a certain type of clinician who can let go all the theories, uh, clever techniques, and expectations of the results of the, um, for the results. Um, so patients, um, you know, this sense of space for a patient creates this um, sense of agency. Um, when patients can uh, form different relationships with, this, with their symptoms, if they generate insights into their, you know, situation, into their illness, uh, eventually the locus of control shifts and they are um, able to uh, separate themselves from their symptoms. And many patients report that if after the session the, the symptoms of depression uh, come back, they have the ability to choose not to fuse with their symptoms and to you know, choose whether to engage or not with their symptoms. So this um, kind of empowerment of patients is the, I think is the main value proposition for, uh, for psilocybin therapy and it's a really distinct feature of psilocybin therapy. So um, to train this therapist, we've created a very rigorous uh, training program. Um, our therapists have uh, two days of on self-based online training and then five days of role play with lead trainers, their interactive in-person training. Uh, but we place a special emphasis on um, clinical training. And so all our therapists, before they can lead the session, uh, they um, have to sit, they have to assist in at least four psilocybin sessions. So for the next phase and beyond approval, uh, this is a, um, an essential part. So we, again, we cannot do it on our own. We form academic partnerships both in the U.S. and Europe in order to do this research and establish academic basis for therapist training. We think it's essential for patient safety. You know, that's, I mean, those concepts are so different to the normal clinical trials we're used to. It's kind of feels even weird <laughs> the, the way in talking about what you're talking about. It's just it's not the usual way. So I'm going to pick on you, George, for mm. a minute. So I know you've had many interesting lives. I wish we had time to talk to George mm -hmm. if you catch him during the weekend. Both George and Katty have done very interesting things in the past. Uh, great dinner conversation. But I know you've had a lot of experience um, with regulators globally. How have they re reacted to you guys coming with this crazy idea to do this? Well, that's exactly how we started was, so my background, so while Katya was doing her training and, and serving as a doctor, I've really been building businesses focused on collaboration. And the most recent one was a, an interesting business called Tapestry Networks, which still exists. And one of the things that we did was realize that collaboration between drug developers and the ecosystem of stakeholders was really important. So I spent a lot of time right as we got married and then uh, the, our, our son became ill. I was working on a project with the European Medicines Agency in nine countries and the pharma industry, payers, HTAs on 
how we could actually slow down late stage failures of either regulatory or reimbursement. So that's what I was doing when, when all this started for us. And out of that came something called parallel scientific advice, which was really how do we all talk about the design of trials in a legal safe harbor between industry and all those stakeholders to improve the design of trials, understand endpoints, agree methodology. So that was my background. And so as we were getting ready to look at this, we went and talked to some regulators. And our first conversation was really interesting. It was an informal conversation. And it was the person looked across at the table and said, We've been waiting for somebody to bring this to us. Why? Well, we know people are taking these drugs. We know they don't know what they're taking quite often, and we know that they don't know what the dose is, certainly. We know that sometimes they're taking them in therapeutic situations with people who may or may not have training. We don't know what that training is. And by the way, we know that some people benefit. So what if we could develop a medicine at the highest GMP standards, do all the hard work and the important work of dose finding, and then move into looking at what the therapeutic model might be and how do we really accelerate and deepen the impact that these treatments can have? So that was our first regulatory engagement. Uh, we then used parallel scientific advice, and I'd like to say that our core value of ours across all of this is we don't view regulators as hurdles. We view them as someone who can really are responsible for a responsible public health, and we think of that as socially responsible science. So what we're doing right now is working very closely with every single regulatory agency that is involved in the countries we're working to really look at how do we do this? How do we think about this innovative treatment, working with payers, health technology agencies? All of this is core, and our breakthrough therapy designation uh, for treatment-resistant depression with the FDA has also been super helpful. So I think all in all, um, it's been a really, really powerful and wonderful collaboration because the thing that, as we saw with our hands raising, 100 million people suffer from treatment-resistant depression around the world. Every 40 seconds, someone commits suicide, and 20 people attempt suicide in that same period. This is a problem. And I think the other aspect of our regulatory interactions is everybody sees that this is a problem. We have treatments, they work for some, they don't work for enough, and that's really the drive and I think the support and engagement we've had. So you talk to regulators, then how do you go about actually setting up a clinical trial with something that's illegal? Um, it's actually um, a lot of paperwork. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that, you know, manufacturing uh, a Schedule I drug uh, to highest GMP standards has been a lesson learned. It's something I never thought I'd be spending time on, but our team is doing a great job. We're on our fifth version of our IMPD and working on commercial supply now and all the things that all of you know how to do. And uh, so it, it's more paperwork. Um, but not a lot more, and I think that you know, this is a medicine that we're working to develop, and its legal status is really kind of chalk and cheese. So Katya, if I can ask you as the medic in the couple, how do you actually do a placebo-controlled trial with a psychedelic? Right. Well, um, it requires a lot of uh, creativity. I think these drugs, this new class of psychoactive drugs, uh, present a number of challenges uh, and opportunities. And placebo um, blinding is, is one of them. But in general, I think we are simply not equipped to, um, to capture. I think everyone understands that with this new emergent class of drugs of rapidly acting antidepressants, uh, with episodic administration, uh, the current scales and current 
um, methods, you know, gold standard RCTs, might not be capturing um, the effects that are clinically meaningful. So um, at this stage, we have to use all these methods. We have to be creative with placebo. Um, and we absolutely have to follow the guidelines. But we also have to start thinking and introducing new exploratory ways of capturing these results. And um, I think this is essential. Um, we have a lot of questions, but we don't have a lot of answers. And therefore, I think the conversations with regulators, early and frequent, um, are very important so we can create this path together. We think that there, this is an opportunity for pre-competitive collaboration with industry, academics, and regulators to talk about this. Uh, new uh, methods, new endpoints, new instruments, uh, which will ultimately move, um, uh, you know, accelerate patients' access to this innovation. Okay. Yeah. So there's been obviously a, a, a large amount of energy in the United States around decriminalizing um, marijuana, for instance, uh, moving it from, you know, um, illegal substance to something you can get with a medical license to now something you can buy over the counter for recreational purposes or medicinal purposes. And of course, now we're seeing a movement to do this with psilocybin. You know, it's still legal in Holland. Um, you know, what, what do you think, what will the impact of this be on the work that you're doing? And, you know, George, how quickly do you see this uh, becoming legal in the United States? Well, I think first of all, foremost, what we're working on is how do we develop the evidence for a track in really caring for patients? And that's really quite different than decriminalization or legalization. So that's where we're focused our time is how do we develop the most meaningful evidence? Um, as it relates to, and I'd also say that there's more breathless enthusiasm right now on fewer points of real data than probably any phase two medicine has ever had, right? So I think we have to keep that in mind. All that being said, I think that decriminalization, I understand that. I don't think that people necessarily should be put into jail when we have so many other things that are working on for trying to change their consciousness with a, you know, a natural product like magic mushrooms. Um, I think the legalization, that gets interesting. You pointed out to the Netherlands where a certain form of psilocybin in the form of a truffle, not a mushroom, is, is available. Now, if we look at the countries where this is happening, you would expect, well, if magic mushrooms are this great as all the press say, there would be no depression. Well, actually, depression is growing at the same levels in the Netherlands as it is in Belgium and France. And, and actually, so this is not just about access to the substance. It's really about what is the care, what's the support, what are all those aspects that we talked about. So I think this will evolve. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm that's way ahead of the data right now, and mm -hmm. we'll need to do all the work. Well, and to your point, there's not enough data, but there are a lot of people out there trying to collect this data. So what, what, do, you, what do you make of the competitors in this field? How do you see yourselves vis-a-vis -vis them? Well, I, I think first of all, we've taken a very kind of rigorous engagement with the regulatory process. So we think that we have a hugely responsible, socially responsible view to science, right? When you think about the role of a regulator, it's largely about guarding public health. And therefore, there needs to be some evidence. And so that's our whole focus. And I think we're really distinctive in terms of our focus on working with regulators in 13 countries, I might add, just so that we understand the variety of perspectives. 
Um, we are developing this to the highest standards of GMP. Um, and we are also developing a very rigorous, with industry leading and uh, also thought leading uh, experts in this field of mental health. So I think there are others there, but I think that our focus on transforming the patient experience in mental health with people who've been there, done that at scale, that's really what makes us distinctive. Mm -hmm. And if others are successful, the problem is huge. Everybody needs, you know, we need new tools. So like that. So, Katia, let me ask you, you've just completed a healthy volunteer study. Can you briefly, I'm sure there's a lot of data you're looking at, but can you tell me briefly what the headline is from that? What, what's, what have you found? Yeah, so we just completed the healthy volunteer study of um, 89 healthy volunteers. It was a placebo-controlled study uh, of the safety and effects uh, of psilocybin on cognitive and emotional processing. Uh, uh, we're very happy with the quality of data and with the results, and we'll be discussing the results at the upcoming ACNP mm -hmm. meeting. We'll be presenting the results in more details. But um, this study also allowed us to prototype a simultaneous administration of psilocybin to up to six healthy volunteers with one-on-one -on -one support model, uh, which was very important for us to do. We demonstrated safety and feasibility, and it allowed us to train uh, more than 50 therapists in the U.S. and uh, Europe for the upcoming Phase 2B um, study. So overall, we're very happy and looking forward to discussing the results. I would just add that that was the largest placebo-controlled trial in history with psychedelics uh, conducted at the, with the Institute of Psychiatry in London. Um, and I think that, you know, from the very blank screen to the readout of data was 17 months, and I think it really also talks to our sense of urgency as we work on this uh, topic. Amen to that. We all want that. Jane, Jeff. So one of the other areas when I th where I think you guys are innovating is in your business model. Mm -hmm. And so I know you started out as a nonprofit, converted to for-profit. And so I'm curious, what, what is your business model? How many times do you anticipate administering the psilocybin? You know, what, what, is the, what is the form in which you deliver it? What does all that look like? Well, first of all, it's super early, right? So Katya and I often say it at the end of the day, we hope the medicine works, right? Uh, all that being said, because we, we're in the middle of an early stage of a phase 2B trial, so we have to acknowledge that. Acknowledging that, yes, you're absolutely right. We did start as a nonprofit. We thought we could accelerate research by helping fund academic research. We met with EMA, and they said focus on treatment-resistant depression. And the, do the math, right? And we just needed access to capital at a huge scale to be able to work that globally to help address the problem. So where we are right now is our business model is we like to plant our feet firmly to the extent we can in 2025 to 2030 and then look at what will CARE look like then. We know it's going to be a combination of digital platforms. We know it's going to be a combination of some form of psychotherapy or therapeutics and some form of medicine. And we're looking right now, even in our phase two trial, of how we combine those elements into a, I guess it's the holy grail for so many of us in this room, right? It's how do we develop a preventative, a predictive, and a precision model of care. And so we're putting in these various elements. We have an interesting partnership with MindStrong Technologies around digital phenotyping because it's a really interesting challenge. What if you have a medicine that actually works with a single treatment and some follow-up care? 
Well, our view is that that's perfectly teed up for innovations in payer dynamics around value-based medicine. I think we have a huge responsibility not to be thinking about regulation as it was kind of developed in the 60s and 70s in the 21st century. So we have to look at what does ongoing monitoring look like? How do we anticipate relapse? The most pernicious aspect of depression is relapse. How do we anticipate that? How do we prevent it? What kinds of tools do we use? Do we use psilocybin? Do we use psilocybin plus digital support tools and so forth? We're exploring all of that. And I think the whole idea is to transform the patient experience of mental health care from a dependence on the tablet I take to really empower people to see an engaged world in a more deeply connected way with themselves, with the society, and with the world around them. So I'll take the last question if that's okay. So... Um you guys have actually attracted extremely prominent advisors, very credible advisors from Europe and US and elsewhere. You have a new CMO now who uh, came from Major Pharma, right? What's been the reaction from patients and the medical community in general that you've encountered? Yeah. Um, so when we started uh, recruitment of the sites two years ago in the US, uh, my mentor and our key advisor, John Rush, um, sent about 20 emails uh, inviting, you know, his network of department heads and, you know, reputable academics to participate in the trial. And within, I think, two hours, we got 15 enthusiastic yeses. And that was two years ago when uh, psilocybin hasn't been in the news uh, as much as it is now. And so it was my favorite part of my job to go and talk to um, academics, new sites, psychedelically naive researchers. Um, and I was really surprised how well-informed people are, how open-minded mainstream psychiatry was. Uh, and now it's, it's even better. It's, um, you know, we synthesize, non, uh, we synthesize GMP cell seven that we provide to uh, researchers, independent researchers, and we get a lot of interest and proposals, both mechanistics and clinical, uh, from independent researchers to study the effects of psilocybin. So it's really, really um, a lot of uh, interest. But I think one of our principal investigators summarized it the best when I asked him why he would want to do such an unusual study. Uh, he looked me straight in the eye and he said, if we could have something for this patients, anything, and that anything really stayed with me. And I think that's the motivation that we're looking in our partners and our you know, academic sites and um, everybody else we work with. So it's main driver behind interest for psilocybin is to have this new um, treatment modalities for patients who currently don't have any. Uh, and the patients are, of course, you know, they're always ahead of the curve. They know about the innovation. And we get a lot of heartbreaking stories um, on our website, and um, you know the clinical development in depression is very, very challenging. And so, in you know the darkest sort of moments, uh, the stories of significant and that need is really what keeps us going. Thank you. I think we're out of time. I would like to say first of all, I was so excited you could come because you're doing Thank such you. innovative work. 
Uh, please come back if you can in future years to give us updates. I'm really happy to hear in our audience really what your challenge has been. I'm sure you're going to have lots like having a child, right? Every stage has its challenges. <laughs> so we would love to uh, follow you there at Summit as well. So please, you have an open invitation, just like I said to Amy. I think we all are interested to see how your journey goes. Jane, thank you for helping uh, the session. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this CNS Summit podcast. To get more episodes on your device automatically, be sure to subscribe to the CNS Summit podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also get this on Health Podcast Network, which you can find at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Be sure to visit the CNS Summit website at cnssummit.org to find out more about upcoming events, news, and announcements.